One of my first racialized memories, the memory my family and I still talk about almost every time we talk about what it was like for me, a black, white, biracial child, to be raised by my white single mother, is the time my mom set my hair on fire with a hot comb. It's a funny story, one that makes me smile now, although I'm not going to lie, it was unnerving in the moment. The story is also representative of the ways in which being a biracial person, being raised by a monoracial parent or parents, can bring up its own unique experiences. My hair has also been a microcosm of my experience as a biracial person, which is to say that my hair has been the source of joy, confusion, and anxiety at different points and in different situations in my life. It's possible that my hair, more than any other feature, is what causes people to see me as racially ambiguous. I'm Malcolm Burnley, a biracial journalist. And I'm Dara Lise Lyons, a biracial journalist. This is the On Being Biracial Podcast. Dara Lise and I have many more stories about our hair. And, you know, Malcolm, sorry to interrupt you, but in a roundabout way, hair was actually part of the story of how we met. I interviewed you for an episode of season one of the Demystifying Diversity podcast because I read the powerful article you wrote for Philadelphia Magazine, which we'll link to in our show notes. Dear Elise, one of the things I wrote about in that story was a famous picture from President Obama's time in the White House. You might remember it. A five-year-old boy, Jacob Philadelphia, who was black, was photographed touching the president's hair, the first black president's hair. And the inference was that Jacob wanted to see if Obama's hair was like his own. To me, that encounter between a young boy and the then president spoke to the idea of how much our understandings of race have been tied to physical characteristics, and in particular, how hair is often a determinant of race. Absolutely. Hair came up in many of our interviews, and it comes up in many conversations about multi-ethnic identity. But I'm sorry, Malcolm, what were you going to say earlier? Well, I was just going to say what you said. Hair came up in a lot of our interviews. Of course, talking about hair isn't just talking about hair. It's part of a much larger conversation about belonging, exclusion, access, legitimacy, feeling seen, and how and where we fit. You mentioned hair Do you have any stories about hair? Because I have innumerable stories about my hair. Who touched you? (laughs) Wait, what? Oh, you mean me? Like who touched my hair? Oh my goodness. Many, many people with various success. Like, I mean, my hair, like, (laughs) it's back now, but when I let it out, like, it's just, my last name is Lyons. And like, Uh, it used to be that I had a full on, I have a mane. I wake up in the morning and it's like. I love it. Yeah. But tell me about you. Yeah. Who touched your hair? Everyone, people in the grocery line. As a kid, I was a petting zoo. Like I wanted my hair crimped like everyone else. I tried to get it as flat as possible. My mom would put curlers in there. And if you don't do anything else to them, you know, it just ends up being like Rosanna Dano, just giant fuzz. But no, I, I don't think I knew how to do my hair properly until about a couple of years ago. To be perfectly honest, I finally went and got my hair cut for like the first time in 20 years. And they told me like, hey, you should do this and that and the other thing. And I'm like, oh, that's not what I was told. <laughs> like, All right, cool. That was an excerpt from my conversation, or should I say commiseration, with Kat Dyson, a visual merchandiser and planner who has worked in a variety of different retail environments. Kat told me that she grew up with people feeling no compunction against touching her hair. 
which is something that came up in the Youth Voices series that we put out last year. Whitley Alfer, a high schooler who has one black parent and one white parent, spoke about an incident of unwanted hair touching in school. So we'll include a link to that episode in case anyone listening is curious to hear Whitley's story. And it was a similar story to the one that my brother Ian, an artist and filmmaker, told me about something that happened to him when he was in middle school. I do have a memory of being in eighth grade English class and the teacher walking through the classroom down the rows to check the homework and grade people. And when she walked behind me, I remember her touching my hair, like feeling my hair. Um, no way. Oh, wow. Tugging uh, on my hair a little bit. That would be an unpleasant interaction. But I also, at that point, it wasn't like I was offended. I, I just like that had never happened to me. So it was more, I was just surprised. Yeah, those are some of the really first formative moments in terms of understanding difference and race and how people of different backgrounds interact with one another. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy about the hair. And for you know anyone listening, the we have very different hair. We've talked to a lot of people with siblings, folks of mixed race, and it's a common theme of just two siblings having different characteristics, which is true, of course, of most siblings besides, I guess, types of fraternal or identical twins, but, but still, you know, just in terms of different traits. So anyways, Ian has much curlier hair than myself. And I always thought you had such cool hair. I was always jealous of your hair. It's like a loaf of bread comes out of the oven a little differently. Every time my hair is curlier than yours, your skin's a little bit darker than mine. Yeah. It's just, everybody comes out a little bit different and there's all sorts of different mixtures, right? We'll speak more later in this episode about how differences in siblings' appearances shape how they're received and create different racialized experiences for them. But Malcolm, I'm curious to know, had you ever heard Ian's story about the teacher touching his hair before? No, and I found that fascinating because Ian and I are pretty close. But just like Kat discovering how to take care of her hair decades into her life, I'm discovering things about my brother, which in turn yield discoveries about my own biracial journey. I didn't realize how commonplace these kinds of experiences are for us biracial folks. I think what stands out to me is how it can so often seem like these one-off incidents are personal and specific. And although they are, there can also be a universality to them as well. Exactly. A lot of biracial people don't necessarily think of our experiences as shared until we start hearing similar stories, which speaks to the power of having these conversations. Malcolm, you shared something with Ian that I don't think he'd ever heard before either. My freshman year of high school, I was bestowed the nickname Rick Fox, Ricky Fox, which looking back, I don't, I think it was a pretty neutral, neutral all around nickname in terms of being like not a great, but not a bad basketball player. And then also just with respect to like race and whatnot, like not insulting. I don't know how I feel about it, but let's be honest, Rick Fox. Very attractive, man. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that was ultimately always the bottom line. So I was like, okay. It's when I had a lot of flowing hair, flowing curly hair. I'm almost as embarrassed about that now as I was back then. But it clarifies how other people sometimes feel like they have license to call attention to or have opinions about the hair of multiracial people in the same way they might ask the what are you question, which we discussed at length in episode two. I thought you captured that really well in your essay for Philly Mag, and I'd love it if you'd read an excerpt from that article. Sure. Here it goes. 
My almond-colored skin, topped with my lightly coiffed hair, short and straight on the sides, wavy and curly on top, is baffling to wannabe typecasters. Even a man with lighter skin than mine, who's equipped with a head of tightly coiled curls, is usually clearly recognized as black. I have the inverse predicament. The last time I walked into a black barber shop, I got the same question about my skin color from a barber perplexed by the oddity atop my head, which looks like a cross between Bruno Mars's pompadour and the Kramer from Seinfeld. I've dubbed that look the interracial flat top. My barber called me ostrich head. It wasn't the first nickname I've gotten. And hair can function as a proxy for other things, or a point of access and or differentiation. Here's another clip from Kat and my conversation about the subliminal and overt messages she received when she was younger in regards to her hair. No wonder some of the identity struggles or the deep introspection or the feelings of not yeah, belonging, the, it like all makes sense. Yeah, change your hair so that we can deal with it. It's like, well, maybe we just learn how to deal with it as it is 30 years later. Although research about multiracial hair specifically is limited, studies have shown that negative hair experiences have a detrimental effect on development. Those negative experiences increase the likelihood of a youth of color developing psychological stress and anxiety around their appearance. And prescriptive attitudes about how people should wear their hair don't stop at childhood. They follow people for life, especially in the workplace. Numerous studies and surveys have shown that naturally textured hair, especially when worn by black women, is perceived to be more unprofessional than Eurocentric hairstyles. Wearing your hair naturally negatively impacts the chances of getting a promotion or even landing a job in the first place. In fact, this dynamic is so pervasive that it's led to a law known as the Crown Act, which has been passed by approximately half the states in the U.S. It bans discrimination on account of one's hairstyle. It was first passed in California in 2019. Evan Fong-Jeroff, who is Chinese, Cuban, Russian, Jewish, American, told me that part of the reason his years in the corporate world felt so confining were because of how prescriptive they were in terms of his appearance and hair. I spent 12 years working in a large financial organization, mm -hmm. and I think I had a big awakening maybe about two, three years ago, where when I looked back at how I was operating, how I was speaking, how I was cutting my hair what I was wearing, a lot of the feedback that I had been given either directly or indirectly were things that were shaping me into what leadership looked like within the organization, which I think is not uncommon that this organization has mainly older white men as the leaders. And these older white men talked a certain way, dressed a certain way, cut their hair a certain way. And there'd kind of be these microaggressions where I would have mentors say, hey, oh, your hair is looking a bit shaggy or, hey, that shirt, does that really go and fit? And I think I was so focused on trying to succeed within that type of organization that I said, oh, you're right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take all the feedback and kind of alter how I looked, how I sound, what I said, what I didn't say. And I think there's definitely a point a couple of years ago where I, I realized how much I was holding my breath. I actually felt like a physical difference when you're operating in some of these spaces where you don't feel that you can share your true thoughts or your, your true self. And, but I think that had happened slowly over a period of 12 years, but I'd gotten to a point where I think I, I thought, well, what is the point of holding all of this back? And is it worth it? It wasn't worth it. And Evan shared about his transition from feeling like he was holding his breath while cutting his hair short to being more self-expressed. It started during the pandemic where I couldn't really 
get my hair cut and I never had it longer than a couple of inches. And I think for ease or whatever, would always just get a short haircut. And I was like that. I don't have to think about it. It's easy to do. It's easy to do. That's what my dad had. That's what my brother had. So I'm just going to get the same short haircut. And then when there was a point where, yeah, I, I couldn't get my haircut, it started to grow out. And then I think it, it started to get wavy and have curls. And I thought, oh, this is funky because my mom's Asian. She has very straight, coarse hair. And then my dad is bald at this point. So it's like not showing that hair, but I knew when he was younger, he had longer hair and it was a bit curly. So oh, this is like another evidence of the mix that I am coming out. Yeah. My partner will definitely tell you there was an awkward, really just bizarre phase where it's, it was growing in a lot of different directions and didn't look great. And when we moved to Zoom calls and I had a lot of calls with colleagues and things like that, everyone would talk about my hair, be like, oh, wow, like it's really long. Oh, I, are you going to get it cut as soon as you can? Or, and when I said, eh, I don't know, I'm going to, you know, try this out. And then they said, oh, what about when we go to back to the office? You're going to get it cut. And then it was this thing where the more people that asked me about it, the more I was like, actually, no, why should I get it cut? Is it because no one else really has long hair? generally, and that's a man in this industry. And to me, that was proving a point. And I've had some really good conversations with colleagues and members of some of the teams I were on where we, they had a chat and they said that they appreciated me doing something different. And again, even though that's, that's not a huge thing, but they said, oh, you actually growing your hair out shows that someone else can do that too, or that's okay. Just by making that statement and by what you're wearing or how your hair is. And I thought, okay, now this is bigger. This this is like, not about me. Actually. I I care more about it proving a point to other Mm -hmm. people to say, you can look like this and be in this type of role or this type of industry. And if people say you can't, then you should really think about if that's where you want to be, or if that's a space that you want to occupy. So it has become more of a, a bit of a statement and I feel different. My hair like makes me feel different. Having longer hair makes me feel maybe more my authentic self than having shorter hair at this point. The pressure to wear one's hair a certain way dates back centuries and is intertwined with the history of slavery and colorism. There are so many examples. For instance, in the 18th century in New Orleans, the government passed the Tignan Laws, which banned Creole and mixed women from wearing their hair naturally in public as a means of ensuring their subjugation and enslavement. That's terrible. And while we may not see those same types of laws on government books anymore, they do still appear in things like school and employee handbooks, although often with more coded language, such as professional or neat. Evan spoke about the connection between hair and authenticity and how censorship of hair and or being stripped of agency around how true to ourselves we can be can have real ramifications professionally and personally. Darylise, I really appreciated how you phrased that as censorship of hair. And speaking about school, I'm reminded of your conversations with Sienna McWhorter in the season we did about youth voices. In that episode, Sienna, who goes to high school near Sydney, Australia, shared about her school's discriminatory and unfair policies around hair and how those policies keep her and other people of color from their cultures while allowing or even enabling appropriation. Yeah, that was a powerful story. And it was in the same episode that Whitley Alfer shared about her experiences. So hopefully listeners will check that out. 
And you know, Malcolm, in addition to the external censorship that people experience, whether in school, at work, or elsewhere, there's also a long history of self-censorship and self-erasure that can happen for those of us multiracial people who don't learn how to engage with our hair or who internalize the false belief that our natural hair is a problem. Absolutely. On the other hand, choosing a specific hairstyle can be a form of empowerment, a way to signal group identity rather than suppress it. I'd love to share an excerpt from my conversation with author Matt Johnson, who wrote the National Book Award-winning novel, Loving Day. When I was younger, one of the big moments where I was like, oh, wow, people could actually perceive me as being Black, was when I learned, like, I got my first fade. And at that time, white people were not getting fades. Certainly white people in history have had fades. I got my first fade, and it was no white Americans who would do that at that time. And so it immediately was a big thing that told people, this is the group that I'm in. I never even thought that would happen. I never thought somebody would perceive me as actually being Black without me telling them. So that was big. And I, and I think once that happened, I realized there was a bunch of other things that I could express who I was in ways that had not been obvious before, from the way I was walking, the way I talked. Later, I found that once I further and further I got out of my context, the way I walk and the way I talk, I wasn't accentuating it. It was just different. I've related to this part of the interview a lot. For a good portion of my life, I kept my hair extremely short with a close crop fade because I thought that would cut down on my ambiguity. That coincides with something I spoke about with Chantel Fitzgerald, founder and CEO of Mindset Strategies, a leadership development firm that focuses on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Chantel shared about straightening her hair for decades before making the transition to wearing it naturally, and how that process forced her to confront her own internalized bias. For a lot of my life, I was brainwashed, especially when it comes to hair, that my hair had to be straight at all times. I never really understood why. And I always taught that our hair was too hard to manage. So it had to be straight. And so honestly, I had gotten my hair straight, I think ever since I was 10 years old and never thought a thing about it. It's just kind of what you do. And then just growing up, always having straight hair and getting my hair straightened always. The epiphany came really during the pandemic when you couldn't go to the hair salon. And I was freaking out like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I don't even know what my natural hair even looks like or feels like because I've straightened it since I've been 10 years old and now I'm almost 40. (laughs) So that's like 30 years of straightening your hair and never knowing what your natural hair really looks like. And so it was really an epiphany that, wow, I have been straightening my hair to fit into more of a dominant culture because that is the expectation and never realized that I was doing it. And ever since the pandemic, I've been wearing my hair naturally or in braids and loving it, actually. It was just a profound moment for me to recognize that about myself. Tell me about the emotional journey of that. You talked about freaking out a little bit in the beginning, but walk me through your emotional process. I mean, it was really hard, you know? I mean, it was very much like, who am I? And I think the emotional process was just fear. I don't even know how to take care of my own hair in its natural state. Also, the emotion of getting used to what I look like with natural hair when I've had straight hair my whole life. So not feeling beautiful, actually, and not feeling like my natural hair is beautiful. 
So struggling through that and like, why am I struggling to feel like my natural hair isn't beautiful? And then realizing that I've been so brainwashed to think that straight is beautiful and having to untangle that psyche of myself and really having to literally change my mindset, like actually natural hair really is beautiful. And my hair is really beautiful, but it was a lot, it was a journey because again, not knowing how to take care of my natural hair and watching YouTube videos and asking my black friends and what products do they use? And I had to have my black friends come over and literally show me and, and, and help me detangle my hair and what gels and creams to use to keep it in its natural state. And so it was a process and it was very humbling, but also be seeking as well. And so yeah, I feel like it was an emotional journey of who am I and and what is beauty and what does beautiful look like? And can I be beautiful in my natural hair? And having to go through the journey of evolving into, yes, I absolutely can. But I feel like it took me a good two years to get there. I really related to what Chantel shared. I always loved other people's curly hair, but I never liked mine, mostly because I had no idea how to manage it. Frankly, I still don't always know how to deal with it, but I embraced my natural hair maybe about 10 years ago now, and I stopped getting relaxers, and I let myself become curious about my hair. And to be fair, it was a difficult transition because I did what's often referred to as the big chop. And for a while, for years, actually, I felt naked and exposed, like I was becoming more of myself in public without knowing who that self was exactly. I appreciate you sharing that, and I appreciate how vulnerable those transitions can be. Rachel Goh, for instance, who created the Mixed Movement podcast with her siblings, shared about her hair journey. If you look at baby pictures of me, my hair was perfectly stick straight, big curls at the bottom. And I hit about 11, 12, 13, somewhere in there. And that's when perms were really popular (laughs) in the late eighties, early nineties. And I permed my hair and it never went back. That's not really what happened. It was puberty, but it's fine. I I blame (laughs) it on the perm. And then I tried relaxers and everything else to get it back. And it just wasn't going back. And because I identified as white, I knew it was just going to be easier to straighten my hair. So I spent from probably the age of 13 up until 35 years of age, straightening my hair. I occasionally would try to let it be natural, let it go curly, but I have a really unique curl pattern where it's super tight, kinky curl at the crown of my head, wavy on the sides and underneath by the back of my neck, it's like straight. So I didn't know what to do with it. I wanted to fit in ultimately as well, especially being in the salon industry, in the beauty Mm -hmm. industry and not being in a salon where they knew how to, nobody was well-versed in working with different cultured hair, if you will. So I just, I would straighten it. It was just easier that way. And it wasn't until my, I think it was when my twins were born. I just was like, you know what? I'm done fighting this. It's not that I don't have time. It's just, let's try something new. And so ultimately it's only been about six or seven years that I've let my natural curls be. And it's not perfect. Every day is a battle. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm like, this hair definitely has a mind of its own. And as it grows, I need different products and I need different care. And I'll straighten it occasionally, but I absolutely love my hair. I love it now. It's unique. It definitely has its own emotions, I feel, certain <laughs> days. <laughs> but it's mine and it's me and I'm no longer fighting it. I'm embracing it and I absolutely love it. Something Rachel also loves is connecting with the guests she interviews on the Mixed Movement podcast, many of whom have their own hair stories to share. Another one, which is my favorite, is hair. The topic of hair is my favorite. It comes up in almost every episode because we all have a, a trial at some point in our lives. And my hope is that my listeners will be able to take something away from each episode that might make them feel a little bit closer to a sense of like having a sense of community. Word Radio is Philadelphia's home for progressive Black talk media. For 20 years, WURD has been the voice of the community, providing information, insights, and conversations on the issues that matter to Black people in Philadelphia and beyond. From politics to pop culture, wellness to wealth, Word Radio's dynamic hosts cover news through a progressive Black lens and perspective. Tune in for live programming every day at wordradio.com. Download the Word Radio app or listen in Philadelphia on 900 AM or 96.1 FM. Follow Word Radio on social media to mark your calendar for an exciting variety of community events and become a member of the Forward Movement to show your support for progressive Black talk media. We want to be clear that even though it can feel validating and affirming to share about experiences of hair with other multiracial people, the experiences people have are often traumatic. One survey found that the majority of Black and or biracial girls experience hair-related bullying. Barbara Idelis Abadia Rexosh, an anthropologist and professor at San Francisco State University, told me about some really disturbing experiences she's had related to her hair, which then brought up a larger conversation about colorism and anti-Blackness. For example, twice in the Austin Bergstrom airport, they check my hair when I wear it in a natural hair. And last March, March 28th, to be exact, in Puerto Rico, at the airport, they check my hair. So for three times I've been like with the same. Uh, oh, uh, so sorry. So it's like when happened in in Texas, I was so hurt a lot. But when happened in Puerto Rico mm-hmm. in 2023, to me in my country in my nation, and I asked the person, "Why are you checking my hair?" And she says, what the machine says, that alarm, or it's a thread or something. And I was like, what? For people that don't understand or or don't believe that our skin color can be a problem for others, not for us, but for others or for the system. And we have been criminalized and it's something that happens and happens to that other person. And as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Malcolm, I have to say that I can't speak for all Black Puerto Rican women because I don't have their experience of all all Black Puerto Rican women. And also because I don't have the understanding 
that other people have. But if, for example, that that happened to me, I know that this is racism, but probably other black women that are accustomed to this doesn't feel like this is racism and normalize this kind of practices. For me, it's important to denounce and to say it and to publicly talk about this. It's very painful for me, but I feel that I have to say it because I know there's other Black women that experience the same and don't understand this is not okay. This is not fair. Your hair is not a threat. Your hair is not bad. Your hair is not doing nothing to nobody or your skin, or the way that you look, or the, the clothes that you use, etc. So that's why it's, it's important to think about this and, and also to talk about being mixed race. Even though a person's skin color isn't and shouldn't be an issue, and no color or hue is better than any other, colorism and racism are pervasive forces within our society, and they're normalized, not only amongst white people, but within and amongst those of us who are subjugated by systemic oppression, those whose external experiences become wielded like weapons and used against them, even within their own countries and communities. These conversations go far beyond hair. They have to do with skin color, features, phenotype, and how others perceive our appearance, and, dare I say, proximity to whiteness. As Barbara shared, people's physical appearances have been used by others to justify all sorts of unjustifiable behavior, not only in the past, but in the present. And I would say that how multiracial people are treated, what discriminations they experience, and what access they have to certain privileges is largely correlated to how they look, which is pretty arbitrary. Mixed identity is tricky. At least for me, it's tricky because people perceive you differently and in so many different ways. And, and you can also pass for, for anything. When I was in India wearing wasari at an Indian wedding and had a bindi, people just assumed I was Indian. Chantel was referring to a particular kind of mixed experience, the kind that many people mentally conjure when they think about biracial people. There tends to be an assumption of racial ambiguity or an appearance that others would view as an overt combination of the two or more races that a person holds. Ian spoke about that and how just because we may hold certain identities or ancestries, we might not have had experiences that coincide with that because physical appearance shapes so much in terms of how people are treated by others. When you're biracial or multiracial and you are seen as being very ambiguous, like ethnically ambiguous, there's always the question of, well, can I really speak for yes. this other group? Because I, I'm not read as being part of that group all the time. So how loud should my voice be and how much of an authority am I really on this speaking for this other group, right? 100%. Malcolm, I appreciated how in your conversation with Ian, the two of you spoke about the intersections between race, color, and societal privilege. Race is such a visual thing. So color is also a very visual thing, but then there's like your actual ancestry and background. It's complicated, right? I identify as a black biracial person. That's how I would describe my racial identity. I mean, I think there's a lot of difficulty with having a background like that, but I think it also does allow you to move through society in, a, in an unfixed way, you know, and there's disadvantages and certainly advantages to that. It's important to recognize that there are a lot of people that 
don't have access to that. It is definitely a privilege. There's privilege there too. I think it's important when discussing the variety and diversity of mixed race experiences to take both privilege and colorism into consideration. For those of you who aren't familiar with the term, colorism describes the global tendency for societies and individuals to devalue and discriminate against people of darker skin. Shadism is another word that can be used to describe the same phenomenon. Sandra Clark of Black and Asian Descent is the CEO of StoryCorps. She had a unique perspective on colorism, having lived in the U.S. and in Africa, and she shared about how pervasive it is and will likely remain. Colorism exists everywhere, and I think that's still something that should be, you know, I'm, I'm thinking even as we talk about the demographics of our country, right, and the browning of America, I really wonder if some of these black-white dynamics are really going to go away. They're not, because colorism is still in black. The reality is black is still the bottom of the rung, right? And so I think we're going to just see a different kind of thing play out as we go along. And so identity is not going anywhere. True. Colorism may not be going anywhere, but depending on where we go in the world, we can see how differently it plays out, and therefore how arbitrary systems of categorization really are. It's interesting because you do realize how race is such a construct, right? The entire time in Africa, I was never called Black. And I'm talking about from locals, right? So in, in West Africa, in Guinea-Bissau, I was considered red. And you go, no, you know, we're, no, you're red. And now it's not to say that, and this is the biracial part, because obviously the Black volunteers were considered Black, but considered American first and then Black second. In Guinea-Bissau, I was red. When I went to Mozambique, I was called yellow. And then when I got to South Africa, I was either called yellow or white. And it truly was more just the skin tone. Right, right. Right. It was less about the race as we look at it in America. And I remember my sister-in-law, she was from Zimbabwe. And, and I would say, no, you know, my dad is Black and my mom is Japanese. And in America, we would look at these things like I'm more likely to be called Black than I would be called Japanese just because of my skin tone. But at the same time, it was funny. Very few people in the U.S. would call me Japanese. They would think I was everything but Japanese. It was like, you're Micronesian. You're, you know, there was all these other kinds of things. So in Africa, it was sort of a little brain twist, right? I mean, we're so used to looking at the world through a certain prism. And people are looking at us, at us differently. And yet there's no stature that comes with anything. The most stature you have is being an American in Africa. That is it. And then you move down those tiers. And white Americans clearly were the golden children, both, I would say, who getting the most privileged, but also sometimes the most reviled behind the scenes, right? Right. Speaking with Sandra brought up a lot about how skin tone, colorism, identity, and nationality function, and really made me contemplate how broad these issues are. Even if this podcast is primarily focused on multiracial identity and experience within the United States. And when we talk about colorism, I think it's important to acknowledge not just its existence, but its impact. Here's Rachel Go again. I don't believe that there should be any hierarchy when it comes to our skin tone, but this is the world that we're living in. And I also feel you can look at me and you can see this, especially being in the salon industry for as long as I have. I've been viewed as not very intelligent, just a pretty face blah, 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 all of those things. It's happened. And I've called people out on it too. And it's never fun, but 
I am motivated to hold my place as an equal because ultimately at the end of every day, we are all human. We are all part of the same race, truthfully. It doesn't make sense to me. It frustrates me. I know I'm not alone when I say that people can look at you, look at your skin and put you in a place in their mind. And so for me, being mixed race, I am all of these places. I deserve to be where I am. So I'm going to prove it with a smile on my face of how I deserve to be here in this room, at this dinner party, at this event. It doesn't matter where I deserve to be here because I am also a human, no matter what I look like. To be clear, colorism does not impact multiracial individuals equally. The darker a person's skin tone, the more heightened the negative effects of shade discrimination tend to be. There's a wide range of ostracization that happens on account of a person's pigmentation and what Malcolm referred to earlier as proximity to whiteness. Many multiracial people face exclusion and rejection on the basis of what they look like, despite the privileges they may carry, whether that's skin privilege, greater access across racial lines, increased identity flexibility, or any of the other things we've been speaking about this season. I talked with Ashanti Martin, the general manager of Black Talk radio station Word Radio in Philadelphia, about the importance of acknowledging one's privilege, however we identify One thing I always say, I don't lean into like any tragic mulatto stereotypes or not even stereotype. I'm not going to be the person to say, oh, I experienced discrimination too as a light skinned black person. Like, no, I clarify that. So when I say like, I felt like an outsider because I was lighter and yes, attention was drawn to me because of that. I don't consider that something that ever helped me back as far as where I get to go. And I just say that because I I have encountered and perhaps you have too, some light-skinned people who try to use that as like, oh, I was persecuted because I was light-skinned. And it's like, maybe yes, but also recognize your privilege. I always try to recognize the privilege that I didn't earn because of that fact. A multiracial person can hold privilege while also having negative experiences that stem from race. Not to mention some multiracial people look white or Black, or Indigenous, or Asian, or Latinx, and may have experiences that align more strongly with their monoracial counterparts, especially if that's how they identify. And then there are monoracial people who might appear to be multiracial and might have their own complicated experiences because of the assumptions outsiders make about them. It's tricky and nuanced and hard to assess what's causing what, which is why things such as intersectionality are important to take into consideration. Malcolm, those are some of the topics that came up in your conversation with Hannah Wallace, a nonprofit professional and the daughter of a Black father and a white mother. Have I been privileged because of coming from two races, or is that simply due to color? I think it's mostly been the former around color, or I guess the last, I don't know which one I said, around Around. color as opposed to that. Yeah, I guess I would throw the question back at you. I mean, that's a good question. That's something I haven't thought in that direction either. Being privileged by coming from two races versus being privileged because of color. Because, and then that's there, you oftentimes so often have that assumption that because you come from two different races, you are going to be of lighter hue. Exactly. Um, and you really spoke so well to that around that's not, a, that's not everyone. That's not always the case. Experience. You know, I look at, because even myself and my sister, we're two different shades. I'm lighter shade than, than she is. And the older we've gotten, the shades change. That, that's a different yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. conversation. The shades can change over time. And do you live in the Northeast or do you live down South? 
I think they both have different types of privileges. Hannah went on to share about the artist Halsey and how her own views align with Halsey's views about the importance of honoring both who we are and how the world perceives us. Funny enough, I don't know much about this artist at all. I just happened to read a brief article or something about an opinion that that she holds. And I'm like, I like that. If you ask me what three songs she's made, I have no idea. (laughs) So Halsey, she is, I don't know, one something, something black. But clearly, when we go back to this whole idea of phenotype, completely can pass for a white woman. So when we think of the one drop rule, that's the one drop. She had just a profound sense of just grounded understanding of colorism and of just of understanding why folks gatekeep and humbling herself. She says that she recognizes and honors her Black heritage. I'm paraphrasing. I don't really remember. This is years ago when I read this. She recognizes and honors her Black heritage, but she understands that she walks through this world assumed to be a white woman. Essentially, she's not going to try to prop herself up as a champion of Blackness because she understands that lived experience is just as, if not more important than our lineage. And I was just like, yes, like that, yes. When I try to understand colorism and how I walk through the world, now I'm more so assumed to be black than than she would be. I just try to keep that sense of humble, stay humble. There's so many black experiences out here, but my black experience, her black experience, any very light-skinned, skinted black experience is tied to many levels of privilege. Some we understand, some we probably don't even understand because we're living it. Yeah. So when she when she said that, she's essentially saying not going to champion the Black experience because how could I? I'm like, I agree with that. Personal identification is extremely important. And at the same time, we need to be cognizant of how people's external appearance can and often does dictate what they go through. It's vital to take all of that into consideration when thinking about multiracial identity and experience. Sarah Gaither is a professor of neuroscience and psychology at Duke University. She spoke about the ramifications of other people's assessments of our appearances and how that often trumps individual identification when it comes to the trauma and profiling that people experience on the basis of their assumed racial identities. When it comes to criminal outcomes, sentencing outcomes, what remains very true regardless of your actual racial identification is skin tone, your features being very prototypical of a group, That's what correlates very strongly with being shot, longer sentencing, et cetera. So it's not ever how much you personally identify as biracial. You look like a Black or a Latino person, then you're going to experience these things. I actually don't know if people are even keeping track of biracial statistics. I know I've talked to a couple of families when their kid has gone missing and they've had to file police reports on how to find their kid. They say, oh, our kids, you know, biracial, Black, white. And they're like, but do they look Black or do they look white? That's how they have to quantify it because you can't say you're looking for a biracial male, they want to know what this person looks like, what they're wearing, right, in order to find them. So there's, again, these different motivational contexts that are going to shift how it is we see and process this biracial category. But this is when we see that our view of people is exacerbated. When we're under stress, when we're anxious, when we're trying to live our life outright, you're going to use those stereotypes more likely and how you're processing who someone is. So if you're a lighter skinned black person, a biracial black, white person, if you're in a police encounter and that police officer is very stressed out and afraid, their brain is going to that context where they're going to use those touristics or shortcuts or cues to figure out who you are and what you are. And if you're a danger, which is why we have such high rates of wrongful identification of darker skinned men in particular, 
being identified for crimes that they didn't do because under threat, again, our stereotypes turn on. We remember people as darker than they are in line with these stereotypes of criminals. And that leads to the wrong people behind bars all the time. Racism and colorism are as egregious as they are arbitrary. And one place where we can see how people's experiences differ solely on the basis of things like hair color or skin color is when thinking about how siblings can have vastly different experiences when it comes to race. We did an entire episode on families, episode number eight. So make sure to listen to that when it's released, because we included some powerful stories about how differing appearances between siblings shape their experiences of race in different ways, even when they have the same racial backgrounds. In exploring how people's physical appearance informs how the world relates to them, it feels important to bring up how those differences impact not only people's upbringings, but also their adulthoods. Here's Barbara again. I was born in 1980. I'm the youngest. I have two other siblings. They both are boys and they were born with light skin, blue eyes. They changed to greens. But since I was born, I, I always remember people asking me or my mother or my father if we were from the same father because we don't look alike. And people asking me, what are your green eyes? Like, this is something wrong that I don't have green eyes as my brother's. The memories that I have regarding race while growing up are very problematic and traumatic in some way, yeah. because was always the, the questioning about why I'm blacker than my siblings, why my hair is different. So the race has been always uh, in my mind, because in actually in school, I was one of the few visible Black person in my classroom since I was in kindergarten. And people say, Barbara, you are Black, but you are my friend. You are Black, but you're smart. You are Black, but you are bonita or cute, etc." So this is something that has been with me forever. And I have been struggling to accept and to avoid the internalized racism because I remember my grandmother, my father's mother, she always was making fun of my nose and saying, you look like Ruth Fernandez, a Black Puerto Rican musician, or you look like Rafael Jose, another Black musician from Puerto Rico. And they are really talented and there's nothing wrong with them. But as a kid, you don't understand why she's saying that to me or that I choose use like a pinche de ropa to put the, the clothes to put in my, in my nose to perfilar, to put it more thin. I received my first hair relaxers when I was in first grade. It was something that my mom did for negotiate my past in this world <laughs> that don't accept my hair, my natural hair as professional or, or clean, etc. So I know that I'm a Black person since the first day <laughs> I was born. My mom, she did what's her best to give me all the things that I that I needed, but we never had the conversation about race. We never had the conversation why I have why you are relaxing my hair or why people are asking all the time if I'm this the same, I have the same patterns that my, my siblings. These sorts of experiences can be extremely painful and are also important to acknowledge. For me, it wasn't until sitting down to interview my own sister for this podcast that I understood just how different our experiences of race have been, largely because of how others see us. 
I felt the same way about Ian, and it was helpful to speak to others who have siblings and get a sense of how it's been for them. I'm thinking specifically of your conversation with Noura El Marzuki and Zayn Hassanein. Noura identifies primarily as Egyptian American and Zayn as Swana American, but also Egyptian American, Muslim, and Jewish. Zayn shared about, well, I'll let him talk about it. I wrote a song when I was in Portland before I moved out here about my relationship with my skin versus my older brother's skin, because my older brother is darker than I am. My sister's lighter than I am. She always makes the joke that the printer ran out of ink, but <laughs> it's a funny one, I know. <laughs> That's credit to Amber Hassanin. I wrote this song about my brother. It was me trying to lay out how I walk through the world being seen one way and my brother walks through the world being seen differently, but we're the same genes. We're the same parents and we have the same upbringing. I'll name some of the lines. I can hide behind my bluish eyes. My olive skin I wear as a disguise. The desert air is in my breath. The longest river in my chest. I've waited long enough. How long will it be before they look at him the way they look at me? And that was really me trying to find out for myself why there is this different connect this different way that we are perceived when there's so much more that we are than just our phenotype, what we look like on our skin. Did you share that song with your brother? Oh yeah. He loves that song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was a big fan of my band. My brother's skin is such a As beautiful as that song is, colorism is an ugly and pervasive force, not only in places where people were enslaved on the basis of their skin or their race, but globally as well. Another thing that came up in some of our conversations is how assumptions about other people's assumptions, whether real or not, can make people self-conscious about how they're being perceived. Darylise, you spoke with Azaria Keys, the assistant director of the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture at Fox School of Business at Temple University. She shared about how she has at times felt self-conscious about claiming her identity as a biracial black woman because of how much she knows how race operates and how she wants to be sensitive to other people's experiences, specifically other black people. I feel like I'm always filling out my conversation around identity with other black folks who don't know me, but because I work in the DEI space, I'm talking about race all the time. And I often, which I think we should all do, is I call them personal experience in my examples and try to lead by example in my actions. And so when I'm talking about myself and I say how I identify, sometimes I look around at the other Black people in the room and I think that the reason it's been a struggle for me is this. And I got into this place where I'm comfortable owning this and having this conversation, which is when I'm around 
other black people who are full black and by full black, I don't necessarily like, I think everyone to a certain extent is mixed with a little something, even if it's different African tribes that you are mixed with. But when I say full black, I mean two black parents as opposed to being biracial or multiracial. But when I speak to those individuals about my race, especially if they are more melanated than me, I felt like for the longest I couldn't own saying that I was black because me just owning that and verbalizing that, does that make it seem like I'm ignoring the privilege I still have because I'm lighter complexion? So I'm now in a place where I'm, if any black person wants to say that I've had black people tell me I'm not black, I've had black people tell me I'm not black enough. That's not usually the case. It's usually either you're black or you're not black. I've had on the flip side, like one drop of black and you're all black, you're black. So it's, it's an interesting, you never know what a person's viewpoint is and how that person chooses to define blackness. But I am now in a place where I can say, if I ever get pushback from a black person, first off, I'm going to handle it with love because I also understand that for darker complexion, black folks who might have that belief that a light skinned biracial person isn't black, they're one, probably defining blackness a lot to do with the, the color of your skin. And then two, some of that I think is rooted in the trauma of colorism and shadism that still exists. And so I handle that conversation with love and care and I allow them to have their definition, but I also stand confident in mine because it doesn't take my experience. But I also then follow up and say, but if we want to have a conversation about colorism and shadism and how that plays a role in blackness and in being a biracial black person, I'm going to own my privilege. And I'm going to say, just like I expect white people to own their white privilege, I need to own my light skin privilege that I have. So it's a, it's a multi-layered conversation when I say that I am black. And so, yeah, sometimes it's hard for me because I also know black people who might be offended by me being a biracial woman saying that I'm black. I admire Azaria's ability to see things holistically and to simultaneously claim her identity while acknowledging her privilege. As she points out, colorism and shadism have inflicted considerable trauma on people of a multitude of races, and it's important to own our various layers of privilege, whether they're visible or invisible. On Being Biracial is funded by the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, a partnership of 29 local newsrooms focusing on issues that affect the daily lives of Philadelphia residents. The PJC is dedicated to bridging the divide between communities and journalists and increasing community-centered, solutions-based journalism that promotes inclusivity and equity in news reporting. To find out more, go to resolvephilly.org PJC. It's almost unfathomable to me that even now in 2023, there are people, typically white people, who will still say, oh, I don't see color. Not only is that not true, unless a person has a visual impairment, it's insulting to people with lived experience of facing discrimination based on appearance. We have to take color into consideration. That's something Jewel Love spoke about in our conversation. Jewel is a biracial executive coach, author, speaker, and the founder of Black Executive Men, and he's constantly navigating spaces that center Black identity. He shared how important it is to be aware of how color impacts things, and he told me that while color absolutely matters, it's not necessarily deterministic in terms of someone's success or opportunities. 
And I'm very conscious of that too. So when I'm looking at an event and it's like, let's say black people event hosted by black people or for black people, something like that. I'm looking at the color as well. I'm looking to see, is anyone biracial that looks like me? Usually it's not the case. Sometimes it is the case. I'm just seeing what's going on. I'm hyper aware of race, color, all of this stuff. I walk into a room, I'm scanning. I'm seeing who's what, what's happening. Where am I on that scale? I'm just highly aware of it. And in corporate America, it's hard for me to say flat out that if you're light skinned, you're going to get the job versus being dark skinned. And the reason why I say that is because I work with a lot of dark skinned brothers that are doing extremely well. They're earning $500,000 base salary. I mean, they're just doing extremely well. I got a lot of Nigerian clients, dark skinned people crushing it. So on one hand, I think I could easily just kind of co-sign a, a perspective of if you're light-skinned, you're going to be better off in corporate. And if you're dark-skinned, it's going to be harder for you. But if you're black, it's just going to be a challenge or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. But what I see in my practice, I got a lot of dark-skinned guys and just what you would just say, brown-skinned yeah. guys, not light-skinned guys. The majority are not light-skinned guys in my practice. They're brown-skinned, dark-skinned, and they're doing very well as well. So colorism and issue in corporate, it's a factor. It's not a non-factor. Mm. However, and this may not be the answer people want to hear, you can crush it with the right skill set, mindset, tool set. It does not matter. You can find a ton of success. Noticing color in and of itself isn't a bad thing at all. In fact, we should be having conversations about color. The problem is when we start ascribing value to different skin tones. And the earlier we start making people aware of the societally pervasive problem of colorism and the beauty of diverse shades and features and hair textures, etc., the better. Kimberly Ortiz Hartman is a multicultural psychologist and the author of the children's picture book, Alexa, What Color Are You? She wrote the book as a way of celebrating, recognizing, and acknowledging color so that kids can start having those conversations early and often. So the title is Alexa, What Color Are You? And I named her Alexa before the Alexa <laughs> was actually a thing. It actually predates that, which is funny now because I've had people be like, well, if you read this near Alexa, she keeps responding to you. So, you know, go away from your Alexa while reading to your children. I think that the title itself is a little controversial, maybe, you know, people have a little feelings about it, but children see race, children see color, and we all do. The whole colorblind thing that people will say, oh, I don't see color, everybody's equal to me is one of my biggest issues. Unless you are actually colorblind, like you see color, and that is okay to see color. To me, that actually has more damaging principles to it because it's actually like invalidating people's experiences. You tell someone who is a person of color, I don't see your color. You are actually negating all the experiences that they've had in their lives where their color may have been a positive or a negative for them. And it's, it's a part of who they are. I think race is so so uncomfortable for people to talk about, right? I mean, people don't say, oh, I don't see that your eyes are blue. I don't see that at all. No one says that about eye color. That would be such a funny thing if someone said that, oh, I couldn't tell that your eyes were brown. We see it. Why is it something that is so negatively viewed? And, and so to me, like I was asked, what are you? What are you? And what people are saying are, what color are you? What race are you? What are you? Define yourself. And so to me, writing this children's book, the term, what color are you really kind of came out naturally. 
I go into kindergarten classes and I read this book to different kids. Kids love talking about their colors. They want to tell you what color their eyes are, their skin, their hair. They want to tell you who they look like, mommy or daddy or their grandpa. Or Kids love having these conversations. And so to me, the conversation about like, what are your colors, like shouldn't be shied away from. I think it's age appropriate. And I think that it's okay for someone to, to talk about that. And I think that the book to me is, it's an opening for conversations. You don't have to be black and white to read this book. It's not just about, do we look just like Alexa's family? It's about what are our colors? What is our culture in our family? What are we connected with? To me, it gives us a great opportunity to have a way to open up these conversations that obviously this is a passion of mine, as you can see, but it, it opens up for other people to have these conversations and it might not be so easy or comfortable or come out in day-to-day life for them. Representation is so positive in children's books, but this isn't just for multiracial, multicultural kids. This book should be for everybody to have these conversations and to learn that like not everybody looks the same. This is our world. Our world is diversifying and let's embrace it and see it as a positive thing. I get so much positive feedback. And honestly, one of the best comments that I get is from biracial or multiracial adults saying, I wish I had this book when I was a kid. To me, that oh, that like that gets me right in the heart. Like I, I just I get that feeling of people go through their lives and feel confused. They don't know how to talk about what they are. They're constantly questions. It's confusing. And we're not even talking deeply about when your family's actually super racist against one yeah. pieces of you, right? Like we could go yeah. deeper into this about like people actually experience horrible racism from their own families. And so This is about opening this up so kids don't have to necessarily go through that. So they don't have to see that, oh, this is bad. We don't talk about this. We don't talk Mm, about these different races and that your family didn't like each other, right? This is about, let's be open and talk about this and let's give kids some language to identify. I didn't have language to identify it. I really would just say, I'm, I think I'm this and this. I would define it in that way when I got old enough to know, but Before that, it was never talked about in that way. I don't think my parents even knew what multicultural was. They never even like probably heard that term before. So this is really about giving families and communities and school language to speak to kids so they can have the words. Like kids don't have the words to describe things, but they are experiencing these things. Kids talk about this stuff, whether we support them in it or not. What do we do when how we appear isn't supported and we're subjected to things like hatred, rejection, bullying, or exclusion on the basis of what others make our colors mean? Jordan Davis, who today identifies as mixed or multiracial and is an advocate for acceptance and inclusion, spent several years operating as an active member of white supremacist and neo-Nazi circles. He told me that it was being picked on and targeted at day camp and at school that were the catalysts for him becoming white identifying and joining white supremacist groups. Jordan said that early in his life, being biracial was something he rejected because of how others reacted to him and how he internalized their rejection and began to reject himself. Do you think colorism has played a role in your life in any way? Yes. Tell me more. At the time, I was just feeling that, hey, the lighter you are, the better and the more that you're going to be able to have a normal life and the less problems you're going to ever have out there. But I believe that all that stuff slapped me dead in the face. So that also played a role in just breaking pointless ideologies and just a pointless state of self-hatred. 
Jordan's self-hatred and his experiences joining neo-Nazi groups was a very extreme reaction to colorism and is unusual, but it demonstrates how internalized racism can have a significant impact, both within ourselves and in terms of how we react to and relate to others. Here's Carter O'Brien Ford, a biracial actor, writer, and creator of a one-man show. I've been pretty light-skinned my whole life. It's always, it's very confusing for some people. Carter shared with Darylise about an experience he had that really showed how pervasive and toxic colorism can be amongst multiracial people. Just to give some context here, like many of the guests that you'll hear on this podcast, before our interview, Carter filled out a survey. And during our interview, I asked him a question about something that he wrote on his survey. And when he asked me to clarify what I meant, I read to him from his survey. And this is where our conversation went. You said, personally, for a long time, I was the only person who I knew who truly identified as biracial. Even when I met another biracial person, they said they were Black because that's how they were treated or the one-drop rule. Or in some scarier cases, they said they were blessed with light skin so they could live their life passing as if it was a gift from God. And that I'd never heard before. And I was like, tell me more about that. Interestingly, that statement has less to do with religious people and more to do with some very obtuse people that I've met growing up. One example that I'll give you, which is the biggest one, is I was hanging out at this place in the in the East Village where my buddy was a bartender and he was about to close up. And our other buddy who was a bartender, he had already closed up. So it was just the three of us hanging out at this place while this guy had to wait 20 minutes to lock the door. And then these two women, it's a Saturday, they show up and my buddy behind the bar Suddenly, we we wanted to just like hang out and go home. But my buddy behind the bar sees how these two women are dressed. And he's like, yeah, we're open for another two hours. And I'm like, great, cool. And they had these thick South American accents. And they start talking. And at one point, the girl who is flirting with my bartender buddy who's behind the bar, she says the N-word. And everyone just kind of like stops talking altogether. Even her friend wasn't like, oh, this is a regular thing she does. And I think she said something along the lines of like, since I've come to New York, I've really wanted an N-word to F me to this bartender, like something very crude and something that he did not find flirty at all. And then I said, why would you say that word in front of us? And instead of dealing with the situation, she immediately snapped at me and said, why would you care? Why would you be offended by that word? And then suddenly, no one was even having a conversation about the fact that she came out and said some crude statement, including the N-word. It was just the fact that the white guy in the room was also offended. And then when I explained to her that I was half Black, she asked me why. And I was like, what do you you mean why? That's it's my, my lineage, my ethnicity and everything else. And she actually took me to the side to give me advice. And that advice was that she was from Argentina and both of her parents are darker than her. Both of her parents are darker than me. Even one of her parents are what some Americans might call black or light-skinned black. And she came out of Caterpillar and she was blessed with who she is today because she is a white woman now, as if it was a blessing from God. She immediately made me start writing about this whole process of coming out of Caterpillar Black and growing up light-skinned and coming out of Butterfly, because that's obviously what she was trying to say. And it was just baffling to me that she told me that that was was just the way that she lived her life. And I've met other people down the road, even people before that situation, 
who were like, oh, you know, I was raised by a white family. Like, I know the way that I look, but everyone treats me white, so it's fine. And yeah, and I have met biracial people that are just like, well, you know, I'm, I look Italian enough and if I straighten my hair enough, it'll stay. The funny part is that woman from Argentina is the only woman that I would call white passing. Well, she looked white. And she's the only woman that I would call that of all these examples that I'm bringing up. Every other person I would consider light-skinned if they were my complexion or even just a little darker. And they still consider themselves white. And I have, I've had more than one conversation about someone telling me, like, you know, you could just be white. I mean, my profile picture on Facebook for a long time was when I relaxed my hair. And for a while, I was getting way more attention from people. And when I brought up I was Black when I had relaxed hair, it was a big shocker to people, especially people that I was trying to woo or date or, you know, whatever. And they were just like, oh, I don't understand. And I was like, yeah, this maybe was a bad idea. So, you know, I, I liked the way it looked, but I was like, I guess I can't live this life without it being more confusing to people. So I stopped doing it. Carter's story was so charged and so multi-layered in terms of racism, colorism, passing, presenting, hair, identity, and assimilation, and so many other issues, and also speaks to how people of color can be biased against one another and ourselves, which brings up so much about how racism is wielded and how privilege operates. To build on this conversation, I think we should talk a little about the distinction between white passing and white presenting. Here's journalist and author Lisa Funderberg, who wrote the book Black, White, Other, explaining some of those distinctions. Passing suggests an intentional choice to go with the flow of your phenotype, of how people are going to see you, whoever they are in public, in, you know, the majority of our interactions in the street and public are with strangers who are making snap decisions about who they're talking to. And passing, I think, historically has been considered something that, let's just stay with Black-white, since that's my direct experience and base of knowledge, was something that Black people would choose to do in order to either gain some kind of advantage that was denied to them because of being Black, economically or socially, personally, emotionally or to be safe, to put themselves at less risk than they would be if they were known, known with quotes around it, to be Black. This is partly where the tragic mulatto trope comes from, which is deeply embedded during the Harlem Renaissance arts movement. We know it from Nella Larson's novels, Passing Mm -hmm. and Quicksand. We know it from the multiple iterations of the film Imitation of Life, where That experience of cloaking oneself in one's own skin is inevitably going to lead to tragedy because it's seen as a denial of the truth, in some cases, a cowardice. To call myself, as some people do, white presenting, white passing, stealth mulatto, whatever any of those iterations, is a more nuanced way, well, it's nuanced if you know what it means. It's a way of claiming Black identity or mixed race identity as a personal experience, as the truth of the lived life of a person, of me, but also simultaneously acknowledging the reality of how the world 
treats me and privileges in most cases me because of my melanin count. It's important to remember that race, while a construct, functions in very real ways in people's lives, and that color can lead to racial heartbreak for many, many people. And also that we can celebrate our colors and how the ways we look are, or at least can be, combinations of our family and our culture. I loved how over the course of the interviews he conducted for his HBO documentary, 1000% Me, which is about mixed-race kids in the Bay Area, Comedian, podcaster, producer, and documentary filmmaker W. Kamau Bell asked the young people he interviewed a really interesting question about their colors. We had a whole section about like, instead of thinking of your skin color as like black or white or whatever, if your skin was a food, what food would it be? What were some of the answers? I mean, it was great. Like Miles said adobo, which is a Filipino stew. My mom said a perfectly baked biscuit. And we've done that because we did in our house. So Sammy says brown sugar. Juno says, she says, Buttercup. Presley, who's the little kid whose dad is Filipino and her mom is white and she plays in a band, said a hot dog bun. (laughs) And then Sumaya, who is the star of the film, says she had this whole thing about like the mushrooms that Dada gets, the really good ones. (laughs) She just sort of stared off into space like she was seeing the mushrooms in her mind. Oh my God. I feel like that's a different kind of mushroom that you get that excited uh, yeah, about. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't ask, a lot of, I should have asked follow up questions. But yeah, <laughs> so it was, and, and those things were fun. But once you got into it and these kids got deep, and then we realized we want to talk to the parents, it was like, I sort of felt like I was maybe doing mixed folks a service by not making it such a surface level conversation. We can do that, but there's actually something deeper happening here and something more interesting happening here than what we thought we were showing up for. While there's more to life than physical appearance, at the same time, our colors, our hair, our phenotypes, quite literally the surface of our skin, can have a deterministic impact on our life experiences. Here's Barbara again. It's important to understand colorism. It's important to understand that we, even though that race is a social construct, there's people that say we shouldn't use the word race and we superate that and we overcome that, etc. We have been treated the way that people see us because of our hair texture, our features, our skin color. So we celebrate La Gran Familia Puerto Ricana, the great Puerto Rican family. But the great Puerto Rican family has different skin tones and colors and are treated very differently. I think that my my body as a Black woman, in Puerto Rican Black woman, my experiences, my, my skin has a lot to say. While we can't know people's stories by looking at them, there's no denying that the stories of multiracial people are different depending on our skin tones. And also that systems of supremacy have very real ramifications. And these systems are operating whether we're aware of them or not, whether we acknowledge or deny them. And despite some common misperceptions, they're not only operational within white communities, but within communities of color as well. Chicago is a pretty diverse place. And I actually live in a suburb right outside of the city that was predominantly Black. And so I grew up around people that looked like me. And I tell this story that I didn't understand racism, like personally at my front door. I understood colorism first, which I know is a remnant of that. It's, it came from that. That was Rachel Lauren, a DEI consultant and civil rights advocate. Rachel told me that she identifies as Black now, although she hasn't always viewed herself that way. I think growing up, I did identify as mixed race. My mother's Puerto Rican, my father's Black, and so I identified as mixed race, but also didn't understand 
what race means in our society, what ethnicity means. And I think a lot of people don't. So what we know is that race is a social construct and it's based on appearance. It's how someone sees you when they first meet you. And that could be skin color. That could be features. There are things that make people make an assumption on what race is. And that's how you get profiled. Right. And so when someone sees me, they tend to think this is a black woman. I present as Black and I do see myself as a Black woman, but that doesn't mean that I don't acknowledge the Puerto Rican ancestry that I have. That is what I consider my ethnicity. That's the culture that I celebrate, the traditions, the food, the stories that it all relates to Puerto Rico. My mother was born and raised there. So that's kind of how I see it. And I think that if you think about race as a social construct, people that are biracial, unfortunately, it takes them having to speak about what biracial means for them oftentimes. I mean, some people do look racially ambiguous, but oftentimes if you are biracial and you are black in in any capacity, you might present, right, as a black person. So it actually would take you to speak about the other things. My own journey around that, I'm certainly much more in the racially ambiguous (laughs) ambiguous camp. My dad's black and my mom's white. I always identified as black. Pretty much up until my early 20s, mid 20s. And I think where I came down was it was a similar argument, but just my experience around the world and how they perceived me was ambiguous. And so it felt ultimately more appropriate, I guess, for me to identify as mixed because it felt like some of what if race is a social construct, what was being thrown back at me was questions or ambiguity. So it felt more, I guess, appropriate to my experience to use that label. As I shared with Rachel, I think at least part of the reason for how I identify the way that I do is because of my ambiguity. And similarly to her, although inverse in terms of identification, how I see myself has a lot to do with how the world sees me and treats me. I'm sure that shapes my experience and identity as well. I've always identified as biracial, but I also think that I look biracial, whatever that means, knowing that biracial can look a lot of different ways. But I guess what I mean by it is that people tend to guess my race as black and white. And again, how we look can translate into how we live and how we're treated. I think we would be blind not to realize, too, that there are privileges that are associated with ambiguity in some way, or even because like what I mentioned earlier, colorism, like even being for me, a white skinned black woman, there were certain privileges that I know I received, unfortunately, because of what society has said about blackness, right? So I'm aware that being racially ambiguous, it comes with questions for sure, which can, I'm sure be uncomfortable and can, can cause question even with identity for individuals throughout their journey. But I also recognize that there can be privileges associated with it. And it can be difficult for individuals who do have privilege, which, by the way, we all do, right, in some capacities. Color is the thing that I think affects society on a very large scale. But there are people that have privilege based on sexual identity, based on educational background. There's all kinds of privileges that we all have. And so I do try to even the understanding, at least, with people so that they understand that, right? Like, just because you might have white privilege doesn't mean that I might not have some level of privilege. But unfortunately, the way that our society was built, that racial privilege tends to trump a lot of the other privileges that we can find. 
because of the, the constructs that have been put into place. There are a lot of exercises that I do in different trainings. For example, I don't know if you've ever seen, there's like a survey that you can hand out where people will, it's almost like a scoring system where people will put points for everything that they can identify with. And they could be questions like, when I move into my neighborhood, I'm accepted. Or when I'm looking for a loan for a home, race doesn't play a role in whether I receive the loan. I can go to a grocery store and find items that relate to my ethnicity or my culture easily. And oftentimes what you find by the end of that survey, I'll have people line up in a circle and you'll, you will literally see the racial privilege in the room. You will see that the access starts on the white side. I've done that practice so many times where I've literally seen, like we talked about colorism, that even play a role and how people line up. And what I always do after that exercise also is ask questions. Who here's a manager? Who here has bachelors? Just different things. And it, it is amazing to see how many people, unfortunately, on the side of color have all of these accomplishments, but cannot say that they have the accolades that mm. some of the other individuals have. It just really shows how society has been built. Being able to see racism in a concrete, physical way can really validate what people experience throughout their lifetimes. It's helpful to increase our awareness of how our society has been built and continues to shape people's access to opportunities and feelings of belonging, and many other factors. Research has shown that those impacts tend to be experienced at higher levels among darker-skinned individuals across all racial groups. One study by the Pew Research Center that interviewed Latinx Americans found that 62% of people reported that darker skin hurts their ability to get ahead, while 59% said lighter skin helps them. Pew researchers also found that individuals with darker skin had lower levels of educational attainment and less access to health care. Still, those of us who may be more racially ambiguous are not immune to those negative experiences. I'll play a few more excerpts from Darylise's conversation with Nora and Zane. We'll start with Zane speaking about why he moved from Portland to Philadelphia. And I had moved here from Portland, Oregon, which is an extremely white city. And I know there are people of color there, and I don't mean to erase their experiences, but demographically speaking, it's predominantly white, overwhelmingly white. And I had lived there for seven years and decided to make the change to move to Philly because I had been starting to honestly feel out of place. I recognized that I'm lighter skinned. I have light eyes, but I was starting to feel like I was being watched when my hair is longer. It's very thick and curly. I have this ambiguous like facial features that people tend to try and figure out what you are. They think you're something, maybe he's like me, maybe he's not like me. And I always felt kind of sussed up in Portland. And so when I finally moved to Philly for grad school, I was excited to be around a lot of people of color, a lot of brown people. For Zane, being around people of color didn't translate into a sense of belonging until he connected with other Swana people, specifically those who had experience living internationally. Zane told me that in spaces with people who'd had similar backgrounds and experiences, he felt like he didn't have to translate or code switch. He shared how much meeting and befriending Noura has meant to him. And similarly, it's meant a lot to Noura, in part because they've shared so many similar experiences, including the experience of not quite fitting in, which is something that can make us multiracial, multicultural people feel like even though we might not feel like we fit in, we fit together. Here's Nura. 
I'll share that moving to Philadelphia and being part of the organizing space and even just moving through the city because of my ambiguity, it took a lot to explain who I was in order to be trusted because I did not grow up in the city. I'm not fully white. I'm not, you know, black. I have this mixed identity thing and I had to always explain who I am because of the dynamics of a city like Philadelphia. I can only speak for the dynamics of Philadelphia from my own experience. So I'm still dealing with that external perception of who I am from others outside of our internal bubbles. And again, as a light-skinned person, there's assumptions that come with that, that aren't my lived experiences that are often placed on me without recognizing the complexities. I mean, when 9-11 happened, I was in high school, I was a senior in Egypt, and my father as a community leader was asked to speak in all these spaces, and he was constantly attacked. You had a party and in your parking lot of your restaurant to celebrate the Twin Towers falling down. My father had no idea what was happening when it happened. He was mm. accused of having training camps in his basement for mm. terrorists and stuff. And this kind of thing came a lot along the way. And it was a double-edged sword because he was a community leader. So he had the, he had to always be a spokesperson, but then he was also visible. So he was visibly attacked and he had lots of relationships Anyway, I don't want to get too into my dad, but I say all of that to say is the experience, my experiences are not visible on my face. Are any of our experiences visible on our faces? Some of us may get closer to that than others, but the more we learn about the subject of race, the more we see that how we look can shape much of what we encounter in society. But that's only a fraction of a much larger picture. True. To get that fuller picture, we have to have these conversations and to explore the lived experiences of people of multiracial ancestry by asking them to share their perspectives and their stories. Our internal experiences don't always align exactly with how we look. And although the last thing we want is for this podcast to become prescriptive, I hope based on the stories and information that was shared, we can all resolve to try our best not to project racial identification onto individuals based on hair or appearance. Also, as Solange famously said in her 2016 hit song, Don't Touch My Hair. Thank you for listening to this episode of the On Being Biracial podcast. Be sure to subscribe now so you'll hear our next three episodes. And if you haven't already, please like, rate, and review the podcast. Thank you to all this season's interviewees. You can find their names on our website, onbeingbiracial.com, along with information about our partners and supporters. And thank you to our producer, editor, and fact checker, Emily Previty, and her team at Cavenda Media, and Paul Kondo, our editor and producer. Special thanks to the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, powered by Resolve Philly, for their significant financial support, which made this project possible, and to Gene Son, their Director of Collaborations. And thank you to everyone who has bought us a coffee so far this season. We'll put a link to our Buy Us a Coffee page in the show notes, in case you'd like to contribute. But by far the biggest contribution you can make is to listen and share. So thanks again, and until next time. <laughs>